0: Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTB. Today's message is brought to us by interim pastor Derek Gatke. He is preaching from Psalm 96, verses 1 through 13. We're uh, continuing our series today called The Disciples Toolbox where we're exploring the basic spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith. So far, we've looked at how to rest, how to read Scripture, and how to pray. Uh, If you missed any of those weeks, or if you want to go back and and review, they're available on our podcast. And yes, we have a podcast. uh, And our YouTube channel, you can review if you want to. But today, we're looking at how to worship. Now, many of you know that I... I'm a musical theater major, but fear not. Tonight, today is not a singing class. I'm not going to be judging anyone. Uh, instead, we're going to look at what worship means from a biblical perspective. Uh, is it just singing on a Sunday morning, or is there more to it? We're going to examine three major points. You know I like my threes. Um, we're going to look at the instinct of worship, the, dis- the discipline of worship, and the transformative power of worship. So the instinct of worship, the discipline of worship, and the transformative power of worship. Will you please bow your heads with me as we pray for this message? Father, uh, I think that um, when we come to church and we see the order of service and we see this is the worship portion, uh, it can be easy for us to assume that's, that's what this is. I pray, God, you would open our eyes, help us hear what you have to say, uh, as opposed to our traditions, our cultures, and what we've been raised to understand. In Jesus' name we pray, I ask that these words be yours, not mine. Amen. 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 All right, so, spiritual discipline of worship. This one is a little different than, oh, sorry, a uh, little reminder, I have to take off my rings because I clack them a lot. Um, so, um, This discipline's a little different than the others because we already do it all the time. Christian or not, religious or not, everybody worships at some degree. If I was to say, you need to work on your worshiping or you need to worship more, it's kind of like me saying, you need to work on your breathing. You need to breathe more. You're like, oh, okay, I don't know how much more I could do. Now, you might be thinking when I say that, Some of you might be asking, what? (laughs) Derek, I literally do not worship or sing outside of Sunday morning. Uh, And some of you might be saying, Derek, I literally do not sing even on Sunday morning, but I will stand and nod appreciatively as everyone else around me does. Let me explain with some good old word etymology. Worship comes from the old English word. Yes, I know we're getting a little nerdy, but uh, the old English word, worth-ship, it was a word used to describe something as being worthy or deserving of honor. So, when I talk about worship in the modern context, think about the things in your life that you deem worthy or deserving of honor. For some of us, and let's be honest, because some of you have confessed this to me, Taylor Swift is deserving of honor. She is worthy Uh, Or whoever you jive to, Beyonce, Blackpink, whatever group you think is worthy of honor, they deserve it. So you show that to them. Other examples could be sports teams. I know we've got Cubs fans, White Sox fans. Don't tell who you support because the other side will lambast you. Um, some, Some of you just like the sports themselves. I know we have a lot of golfers for whom a good day on the course is worthy and deserving of honor. Really good books, I know we got some Lord of the Rings fans, really good books are worthy of honor, good movies, shows, video games, I know some of you like video games, I, no, no, I, I like them too, so no, no judgment. Um, a phenomenal meal, you eat a great meal, and oh, oh you just can't, I, I got to talk to the chef, give him my compliments. Uh, your family, you just, you can't stop talking about how much you love your spouse, uh, your kids, you know, I could go on for days, about day. Uh, Your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your best friend, they're all worthy and deserving of honor. And whenever you vocalize or express how much you think they deserve it, that's worship. So that's what I mean when I say we all worship all the time. To some degree, we can't help it, because again, like breathing, we need to. Worship is an instinct. It just comes naturally. Think of anything that really excites you. Maybe the stuff I just listed was one of those things. To what degree can you never talk about that? Could you honestly say you could go see your favorite musician or your favorite sports team or movie or anything and not say a word to anyone afterwards? Went and saw, you know, the greatest Super Bowl ever. And then you go home and people ask you, how was it? No, not gonna, nothing, we don't need to talk about that. Like, of course you wouldn't. You'd be ecstatic. You'd be like, did you see that play? Did you see that ref? Oh, darn, those refs. Or, or did, you, did, you hear, did you hear the latest uh, Taylor Swift album? I'm going to use Taylor Swift a lot because I'm not very plugged into pop culture music. But anyway, um, even something as small as just taking a bite of something and going, mmm, that's worship. I'll uh, give you a specific example from my own life. Uh, based on the box office receipts, I'm assuming all, most or all of you saw Avengers Endgame. If you didn't, I apologize, because I have to spoil a moment again. I'm, I know, I'm the, I'm the spoily pastor. I'm sorry. Um, there's a scene at the end. The, the movies have been building up. Uh, one of the Avengers, Thor, is a god, and he has this weapon called Mjolnir. It's a mighty hammer, and the movies have established that no one can move that hammer except for Thor. There's an enchantment on it that says... Only he who is worthy of the power of Thor may wield this hammer." So the whole movie, there's lots of jokes, like the Hulk tries to pick it up, he can't move it. And then at the end of Avengers Endgame, when everyone, everything looks bad and the big bad Thanos is like wiping the floor with everyone, it looks like the end of the, it's all gonna fall apart. Captain America picks up the hammer. And in my theater, people cheered. (laughs) I cheered. We had standing ovations in the theater. (laughs) Who were they cheering? Chris Chris Evans, the actor, was not there. He couldn't take a bow for his performance. The writer-directors, the Russo brothers, they weren't there. The overworked, underpaid CG artists were not there. (laughs) Who was hearing this? No one. We couldn't help ourselves. The moment was too worthy to not acknowledge. Little side note, it also warms my heart. Even in a post-Christian society, we can't help but cheer at the idea of a man proven worthy of godhood, smashing death in the face with a carpenter's tool. But (laughs) I digress. Now, there are times when, again, this is instinctive. We just react. We feel the sensation that this is a cool moment or a good thing, and we, we, we worship. We can also react to God in the same way, just instinctively. Like our passage opens... Uh, Our passage today, Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. We just can't help. But these are all examples of what I'd call surface worship. Times when we find joy and beauty in the world, or even God, and we react accordingly. But there's a different kind of worship, a deeper kind, that's interwoven in our hearts, and we need to take a look at. Uh, back in the fall, when we went through the Ten Commandments, the first and foremost of those was, you shall have no other gods before me. And as it laid out, I was, I was blessed to be able to, to preach that message And in that message, I touched on the idea that we were created for love and worship. It's as much a need for us as eating, breathing, and sleeping. But God created us to live in a cycle of love and worship with him, where we could bask and rejoice in who he is. When we turned away from him, when we decided to try and fulfill our needs ourselves to some degree, when we decided to worship ourselves... We broke that. We broke the cycle. And then we consequently broke ourselves. And now our broken inner engine grasps at whatever it can find to fill that God-shaped hole. The idea when we talk about idolatry, that's what we mean. The idea of idolatry is that when we talk about serving other gods, we're ter- talking about how we've allowed our worship instinct to latch onto something other than God and make it the primary fuel of our hearts. The surface worship stuff, when you're just excited about something and you like it, that's good and natural, but if it seeps into primary worship, the core of who you are, that's idolatry. And often, this seeps in in a way that you don't even realize until it's too late. And before you know it, you're addicted to poison. That you've been gobbling up because you've neglected to partake in the bread of life. What this means is idolatry is corrupted worship. That's what it is. In days of yore, the forces that we would latch onto were personified as actual gods, but they're still very much alive today. And all the more dangerous because they're woven into what many of us would just consider the way things are, the way life works. In his book, Surprised by Scripture, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright delves into what he calls Idolatry 2.0. He says, these other gods are not strangers. The ancient world knew them well. Just to name the three most obvious, there are Mars, the god of war, Mammon, the god of money, and Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love. These ancient and well-known gods have not gone away, have not been banished upstairs, but are present and powerful, all the more so for being unrecognized. In what sense are they divine? The ancients would have no trouble answering that. First, those who worship gods become like them. Their characters are formed as they imitate the object of worship and imbibe its inner essence. Second, worshiping them demands sacrifices, and those sacrifices are often human. You hardly need me to spell out the point. How many million children, born or indeed unborn, have been sacrificed on the altar of Aphrodite, denied a secure upbringing because the demands of erotic desire keep one or both parents on the move? How many million lives have been blighted by money, whether by not having it or, worse, by having too much of it? And if you think you can't have too much of it, that just shows how deeply mammon worship has soaked into us. And how many are being torn apart as we speak by the incessant demands of power, violence, and war. Anytime you allow anything to take precedence in your life over God, you are worshiping it. Again, not just surface worship, but the deep worship. You decide, again, whether it's intentionally or without you even realizing it, you decide that your personal comfort Or your ability to control your situation is more important than obedience. So you either ignore or you wriggle around what Scripture tells you is true or in line with God's will. You allow the serpent to whisper into your heart, just like he did Adam and Eve, did God really say that? Or you just turn away from God entirely, deny he exists, and then you're free to embrace your other gods because There's no reason not to. But this is all a trap. You may think you're maintaining control, but all you're really doing is handing control of your heart and life over to something other than God. And ultimately, all those things, anything other than God, will either fail you or destroy you entirely. And because, again, worship is instinctive, it's very, very easy for us to fall into that trap. But again, we weren't built for false gods. Only God can satisfy. So how do you get back to him? How do you break the habit of swallowing poison, even if it's very, very sweet, and get back to the bread and water of life? That brings us to the discipline of worship. I know some of you might be like, oh, discipline. Oh, dang it, Derek. (laughs) Back in 1994, uh, Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, gave an interview with Leadership Journal, which is a now-defunct publication of Christianity Today. He, He talked about the nature of worship. And what he said was, "...worshiping God is an instinct that's gone awry. As a result, it must be learned. But as it's learned, it feels utterly right and natural." Jonathan Edwards spoke of religion consisting in our affections. Our affections consist of that core part of our being that orients our mind, will, and emotions toward an object. Sin has caused our affections to stray, propelling us to worship relationships, achievements, work, everything but God. Alfred Adler uh, would say we gravitate toward control or power or comfort or approval. We obsess about those things, comfort ourselves with them, fantasize about them. Of course, biblically speaking, those things are idols. Worship is pulling our affections off our idols and putting them on God. Obviously, at our deepest level, we were created for worship. But rediscovering that takes skill. It's learned. So again, when I talk about how to worship... It's not that we don't know how. It's that we need to learn how to do it right. We need to learn, as Tim Keller says, how to pull our affections off our idols and put them back on God. And to Keller's point, that takes time for us to learn. It takes discipline. It it takes focus and intent. If you want to get healthier, who doesn't? (laughs) physically, mentally, whatever, you can't just keep doing what you've been doing and hope things will work themselves out. You need to have a plan. If you're getting physically healthier, you need a meal plan, exercise routine, Uh, mental health. You might need to go to therapy on a regular basis. You need to turn away from what you've been doing, bad habits, bad food, what have you, and turn towards something else, good habits, good food. And then you need to continually focus and stick with it day in and day out. So when you come to church and we sing worship together, you can't just jump in without any thought or preparation and expect that everything will just click. I really want to call out Eugene. I appreciate um, when you say, let's take a few moments to just prepare our hearts and minds for worship. We need that. And usually the hustle and bustle, we just want to jump right in like... um, If if there is a hustle and bustle, then take some time in the hallway. But you also, we can't just think of worship as just this one short singing exercise we do on Sunday mornings. You couldn't hope to train for a marathon by only eating one healthy meal a week or doing one bit of exercise a week. You know, I got my half hour in, all right, 26 miles, here we go. You will, just like you will eat every day, You will exercise or not every day. How you do it ultimately determines your physical health. You will worship every day. You will. It's an instinct. But what you worship, how you worship, that will determine your spiritual health. So how do we do this? (laughs) How do we pull our affections off of our idols and put them on God? I'm so glad you asked. Um, (laughs) I do have some practical steps that I, I think will help. Uh, step one, all right? Pencils out, class? Step one, figure out what's currently commanding your affections. In other words, what do you worship? Figure that out. And be open and blunt and honest with yourself, because otherwise this isn't going to work. Sometimes it's obvious. You know, some, some of the stuff I, I called out, like if I grew up in Wisconsin. The, the Packers are a cult. You cannot convince me otherwise. Everyone in Wisconsin, Packers, Packers, Packers. I, I, I think I know one of your idols. <laughs> um, but sports team, if that's all you can think about, put it on the list. Some of them are obvious in the ways that we as church folk like to look down. A sin that you are caught up in. Uh, an addiction that you have. But any obsession. Sometimes it's a less obvious idol especially in a religious context. For example, are you in love with God and seeking Him? Or are you in love with feeling a spiritual high? The way church and maybe even corporate worship make you feel, and you're seeking that. I know it's a tough question. Do you love Scripture? Because it's God's Word, and you want it to reshape your heart, and you want to have Him talk into your heart, or... Do you value scripture because through your knowledge of it, you can feel superior to others and use that double edged sword to cut through their hearts instead of yours? If you're not sure what you actually worship and thus what commands your heart, ask yourself these questions What gets you excited? What gets your heart pounding? What is it the soon as you hear someone in another conversation say, yeah, I saw this today, i got to get into that conversation? What are those things for you? Two, what can you not say no to? Second, anyone offers it, don't even have to, you don't have to pull my arm. And then this is the big one, where do you invest your time and your money? I once had a pastor who said, rightfully so, Uh, Show me your calendar and your bank statements, and I'll tell you what your idols are. It's as blunt as that. Now, this is just the assessment stage, but it's vital if you want to break free of corrupted worship. You have to know what you're breaking free from. Step two, figure out why you worship those things. In other words, why are they attractive to you? because we only worship things when they're attractive to us, when we find them beautiful, when we're getting something out of them. So what are you getting out of these things? The same pastor that gave me the the calendar and bake statement uh, talk also told me the problem is never the problem. There's always something deeper that's actually driving you. If you're in a real bad spat with your spouse and the surface argument is you won't let me watch whatever show that I really wanna watch. That's not the problem in that relationship. It's not. But finding out what that is, that takes time, that takes thought, that takes honesty. As Keller called out, uh, according to Alfred Adler, and for those who don't know, and I didn't know (laughs) until I uh, learned up on him, he was the founder of individual psychology, okay? Alfred Adler said that we as humans tend to gravitate towards control, power, comfort, or approval. So if you're trying to figure out what is it that's attractive to me about this, that, or the other thing, start there. Is it control, power, comfort, or approval? The tricky thing is, you could find all of these in pretty much any idol I could list. The sex, career, money, social media, video games. You could find some aspect in any one of those. So which of those do you gravitate towards? That's the question. Step three, once you've figured out what your idols are and why you find them attractive, connect the dots and see that what you are trying to get out of your idols Is infinitely greater in God and then go to him for those needs just like junk food will fill you up but leave you rotten inside idols can make you feel full but they can never satisfy you'll always want more that's why Jesus calls himself the bread of life John chapter 6 Jesus said to them I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's not talking about physical hunger and thirst. It's spiritual. You will always be spiritually starving if your worship is idols. Always. You'll always want more. You've heard heard the stats on addictions. Some of you might be caught up in addictions where it started with one beer or a glimpse of someone naked. And very quickly, that wasn't enough and it builds, and it builds, and it builds. You'll never have enough. Self-examination, cataloging our idols, and then deciding, oh, yeah, I need to go to God. Well, that only gets us so far. We are, just like improving our physical health requires a constant reorienting of our minds and our bodies, so does our spiritual health. It's constant. We always have to keep going back. Double-checking, reassessing. In our psalm today, the focus is as much telling us to rejoice in God as it is an active example of doing so. Psalm 96, again, going back to the beginning. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. You, sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. This is as much instructional as it is declarative. And look at those words, marvelous works. How do you know they're marvelous? Because you've seen them, you remember them, you think about them. Using an adjective like that requires thought. It requires reflection. The the passage, our psalm, goes on to call out why we should do this, why sing a new song to God. Comparing God to the other things, we might be tempted to worship and calling out how much better he is. Uh, Verses 4 through 6. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. This is a recurring theme in the Psalms and indeed the whole Bible that worshiping God involves refocusing on why he is worthy of it why is he deserving of honor? Because if we just rest on our laurels and be like, yeah, God's good. God is love. What does that mean to you? You need to think about what that means. You need to to meditate on what that means because the words alone aren't going to do it. At the beginning of this series, uh, the first one, How to Rest, I mentioned that I, I do worry we see spiritual disciplines as kind of a necessary evil. You know, they're the hard and boring things that that you have to do to be a good Christian. So there's, you know, like there's a little guilt, there's a little shame if we're not doing it right or not doing it enough. But think about the things you worship. The stuff you embrace. The stuff you do that is hard and boring to other people, but it's not for you because you love what you worship. Again, Sports. Some of you guys love working out. Praise God. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> for me, that's hard and boring, but you love it. I've heard about the runner's high. God has cursed me. I, I cannot have the runner's high. <laughs> I have never experienced it. I do not know this myth of which you speak, but some of you have it. And you, and you embrace it. You run for it. You'll go like, one of you I know, I think Jeremy, you'll run like 10 miles a day. It's like Amazing. For me, I could never, I'd die. (laughs) Taylor Swift, again, any musician that you love, you could crank that music as loud as possible. I like instrumental music. So, um, you know, classical movie soundtracks, things like that. So for me, it's like, it's nice to hear every now and then, but I'm not going to obsess over it. I'm not going to memorize the lyrics. I'm not going to wear the merchandise. These activities that are easy for you are natural reactions to what you worship. So even if there are aspects to pursuing things that you love that aren't always fun or easy, you're still driven because you find something beautiful and attractive in it. You want to get closer to it. You want more of it in your life. We do this naturally. Just as you can't help but offer surface worship to things you find attractive or beautiful. If you truly come to understand how beautiful God is, worshiping him will, as Tim Keller put it, feel utterly right and natural. How do we know God's beautiful? Again, if we just fall back on words, is that going to do it? We know God's beautiful because he's the source and author of beauty itself including the stuff we worship instead of him. Music, he invented that. Every note that makes your heart sing, he made that possible. Nature, I, don't, I know a lot of you guys like to hike and see the, the glories. He sculpted the mountains. He, he paints happy trees for real. <laughs> Some of you older folks know that reference. Right? <laughs> The physics necessary for sports to even be possible. The fact that a ball will fly through the air. God crafted that arc every time. Love, just the ability to love, the fact love is a thing. You know how easy it would be for this universe to exist without love and just function? Beauty. Everything you find beautiful, he created. There's a spark of him in it. Taylor Swift might have written a lot of great hits, but God wrote Taylor Swift. <laughs> Am I wrong? No. Idolatry is when you worship creation instead of the creator. Can we learn to turn that around? Can you go past the surface of what you love and see the true beauty at the center of the universe, the one who loved you all the way to hell and back. And he's still calling with open arms. When you do, when you find that beauty, when it grabs your heart, you might start to see some surprising changes. And that brings us to our final point, the transformative power of worship. Earlier, when I quoted N.T. Wright, and his thoughts on idolatry, Uh, he made a statement that I'd like to return to. Those who worship gods become like them. Their characters are formed as they imitate the object of worship and imbibe its inner essence. The Bible summarizes this to some degree. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Worship defines not just where your heart lies, but eventually what your heart looks like, and consequently, what you look like. Regardless of what you worship, the more you do so, the more you grow to resemble the object of your worship. Again, if you guys worship physical health, you're going to look swole, right? <laughs> like, after a while. If you worship um, a sports team, you'll be covered in merchandise. you Posters on the wall, all you can talk about. It affects everything. But if you worship money, you'll become greedy and selfish, like mammon. If you worship sex, you'll become lustful and wandering, like Aphrodite. And if you worship power, you'll become cruel and controlling, like Mars. But if Jesus is the object of your worship and you consistently work to put him at the center of your life, then you'll grow to resemble him. And if the world needs anything right now, it's more Jesus. Can I get an amen? (laughs) If you want to see transformation, like real transformation in your life, in the lives of your friends and family, your city, your nation, the world, it starts with what or who you worship. We Christians tend to marvel at the book of Acts. You know, it opens chapter 2. Peter has gone from, you know, the the untrustworthy fisherman who's like, I don't know what to do. And then Holy Spirit comes and gives a sermon and 3,000 people are saved in a day. That's a mega church. (laughs) In one day. And we're just like, whoa, what's going on here? Why can't we see results like that? First off, stop being concerned about results. (laughs) Second, we saw the disciples transformed to reflect the one they loved. They performed miracles. They preached boldly. They laid their hands on people and they were healed. Do you think that's not possible anymore? When they were confronted by the Pharisees in Acts chapter 4, Luke tells us, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They saw Jesus reflected in these common, uneducated men people ask a lot how they live out their Christian life outside of church and community groups. Like, how do I live out my life at work? How do I live it at home with my secular friends? Like, how? I don't have all the answers, but I will say, you can't help but share your passions with others. And you certainly can't hide what you truly, actually love. Just like you can't do that, Every aspect of your life will start to reflect Jesus if you let him have that top slot. You know what it's like to see someone at work in your fr- or in your friend group who's obsessed with something. You know, that one guy who just will not stop talking about League of Legends. <laughs> <laughs> just please. Yes, I get it. You love it. But it affects everything. What they say, how they say it, what they wear, what they do. And it's not just that they can't help it, it's that they rejoice in it. They can't contain their excitement. The more you fall in love with Jesus, the more time you spend with him, with some of our other disciplines, reading scripture, praying, the more that you do that, the more that that love, that worship will fuel you to do amazing, dangerous, even scary things. If you love Jesus more than your career, you'll start doing stuff that many would consider career suicide. You'll be honest to a fault. You'll stand up for someone else to your boss. You'll take the fall for someone else's mistake. And as scary as that is to think about, and I'm not saying like, do that and then you will be transformed? No, you have to be transformed first, otherwise you can't do that. And as scary as that is, if you saw someone else doing it, wouldn't you want to talk to them? Wouldn't you want to get to know how they tick? Wouldn't that be attractive? We look at people doing that in public. Any time someone takes a risk for someone else, and we're drawn to it. It scares us to think about doing it ourselves, but we would, how could we not want to go talk to those people? They stand out like a light on the hill. If you love Jesus more than your friends or family or spouse, you'll actually start loving them deeper and more sincerely. You'll find that what you really loved about them was how they made you feel, not who they were. And now, with Jesus at the core of your life, where you don't need them to make you feel better because you are already amazed by what Jesus has done. Now you can love them the way God does, selflessly, honestly, and most likely in a way they may have never seen before. And if you love Jesus more than yourself, which is the ultimate idol, you'll find a freedom you didn't even realize you needed. All the self-worth, the approval, the love and fulfillment you've been scrambling to find and hold on to, it's all in him. And it's being offered to you in waves upon waves beyond your ability to contain it. Just as the moon has no light aside from how much of the sun it gets, if you want to be light in the darkness, and I think we do, you need to position yourself to reflect as much of God the sun as you can. And the more you do that, the brighter you will shine, the brighter you will feel. Again, you'll be bathed in the light of the sun on a regular basis. And the more our worship will go out into the world and give God more glory. Let us pray. Thanks for tuning in to this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.